Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to be talking about India. The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will be visiting the UK this week. He's speaking to Parliament and will most likely even have lunch with the Queen. He'll also address a crowd of over 70,000 people, many of them of Indian descent, at the Wembley Stadium, at what will be the largest reception any foreign head of government has ever received in the UK. But many people are also comparing this to Xi Jinping's visit earlier on, which was even more uh, exciting from a perspective of, of pomp and circumstance and the media was certainly very pumped up about it. At ECFR we're using Modi's visit as an opportunity to discuss what India and Modi are up to at the moment but more importantly what it means for the future shape of the world and Europe's relationships with this uh, great power. So for this discussion I've got three fantastic experts. First up is uh, Bharat Karanad, who is a professor of national security studies at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi, author of several books on India and Indian security, but also a chapter in our new uh, collection of essays, What Does India Think?, which was edited by our second guest, François Goodman, who is the director of the Asia and China program at ECFR and a senior policy fellow, and uh, has just brought out this fascinating collection of essays, mainly by Indian authors. And our third guest is Clemens Spies, who is a project officer on India at the Robert Bosch Stiftung in Germany. He's an expert on Indian politics and foreign policy and has a PhD uh, comparing the Indian National Congress and the African National Congress. Uh, and we're very happy to be working with the, the Bosch Foundation on this exciting project about uh, what does India think. So maybe we can start with a question to you, Bharat, about uh, where India is at at the moment. How should we think about India as a power in the world? We've seen various different phases. After independence, there was a period of Nehruvian moral politique where India was certainly a, a force to be reckoned with in terms of shaping how people thought about the world. We then had a period where India was, was growing as maybe a bit more introverted and uh, I think some people saw it as, as uh, maybe following kind of selfish national interests rather than trying to, to shape the, the global order in the way that it had done in the, the Nehruvian period. What does Modi stand for? What kind of foreign policy is he going to adopt? Well, following on what you're saying, I think India would be um, is in a re-emergent state, as it were. It's coming back into the world stage. It's trying to reassert itself, uh, carve out a bigger role for itself in the world in terms of both trade and in terms of international politics, uh, being part of the woof and weave of um, interstate relations, the major interstate relations uh, that shape the world. And so um, it is, in a sense, rediscovering uh, the kind of um, primacy it had, as you mentioned, in the 50s, when it um, uh, led the campaigns for disarmament and uh, anti-colonialism and so on and so forth. Um, that's a good thing to happen. And I think in uh, in a way um, it, it it hews to the larger uh, presence of India as a multi-trillion dollar economy that um, trades with most of the major entities in the world in a very substantive sort of way. So um, India is, I think, going to become, um, I mean, mean and matter more and more uh, to the health of the world in terms of stability, in terms of peace, and in terms of, um, uh, you know, 
a more reasonable order, international order, um, uh, that will um, try and uh, deal with some of the um, uh, roiling that's taking place, you know, with the extremist Islamic elements, and it's all part of Asia where India is, uh, in terms of China, which sometimes acts in a very destabilizing sort of ways, and therefore India then becomes central to dealing and addressing these problems. So, François, maybe I can turn to you next. We've heard that India's back in economic terms. Geographically, it clearly matters as far as containing China's concerned. It's in also an interesting geographical position vis-à-vis uh, Afghanistan and some of the, the other kind of geopolitical challenges. But uh, does it also stand for a particular vision of, of, of the world? When you and, and Clements were in India a couple of weeks ago talking to lots of the intellectual elite in, in the country, what ideas uh, did you uh, come back with? What were you struck by? Well, you can't talk about the Indian intellectual elite overall. There are very different views. But I would say there was one overarching theme, which was please uh do not talk to us anymore about uh, neutralist India, multilateral India, uh, non, non, uh, non-engaged uh, India. We're about realism. Uh, we're about uh, exercising power because others aren't. Nobody really talked about the multipolar world, but that's what India is about, being a major center of power. They're reacting, of course, to the Chinese. Uh, it's a realist mood. Uh, Modi adds to it the pragmatic wish for deals, concrete deals. What's in it for us? A lot of it relates to uh, uh, actually India's development. And in fact, some made an exact reference of Deng Xiaoping and China by saying, you know, Deng Xiaoping was right to have a, a kind of 30 years period where every act of foreign policy is really geared uh, towards domestic needs and economic growth. That was the kind of thing. So very ambiguous as to India's overall role. Uh, if we count on India for problem solving, it's not yet there. Uh, perhaps it's not its top priority, although in some cases it feels concerned. Uh, but if we uh, count, but if we look at India uh, about what its interest is and how can it coincide with ours, well, there the Indians have something to say. And Clements, you focused a lot of your career on the on the Congress Party. Um, how does the kind of post-Congress India look to you as a foreign policy actor? Yeah, uh, I, I would agree with with Francois, and I think that there has been this old famous dictum of Stephen Cohen that India is always emerging but never arriving. I think this this uh, time under Modi is now a critical juncture where uh, India is. Um, on the brink of arriving uh, as a great power. And I think India's relevance in, in foreign policy is not only in terms of um, global governance, from climate change to global finances and world trade and so on, but it's basically its importance for, for the regional order, for the security architecture in Asia, which, uh, which is so important. And the fact also that it is part of almost all, the, all these more recent attempts to, to challenge the established international order and its, its institutions for be it BRICS, IPSA, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, AIAB, and so on, which makes it uh, such an important uh, counterpart for the West also. So, um, Barat, maybe we can go into a bit more detail on this, both 
on the regional order and what the kind of Indian idea of the regional order is, and then after that into the global order. But why don't we start with the regional order because it is more real and it's obviously a region that's going through profound changes at the moment. Um, I think it'll be the basis, uh, the good relations, India's good relations with the neighbouring states, I think become the building block for India's uh, future prospects. If we don't get the get, get this right, I think uh, we may not be able to attain and achieve our larger ambitions. Um, here, I'm afraid, again, our relations with Pakistan become uh, fairly uh, decisive. And so far, we haven't quite handled Pakistan well in terms of incentivizing them to plug into the Indian economy, for instance, which is natural. Um, for instance, uh, Pakistani factories that rely on coal, um, you know, for thermal power, uh, they can actually, we can ride trains from the coal fields of Bihar, Jharia, into the factory gates in Pakistan. Instead, Pakistan imports coal from Australia. Yeah. You, these are the kinds of disjunctions you have that do not make economic sense. And so um, Pakistanis have realized it. Uh, the, the chambers of commerce and so on are in the forefront of seeking very close relations, economic relations with India. But for that, I'm afraid India will have to do, in a sense, incentivize um, uh, them politically and, and militarily. And that's one of the really interesting things. I was talking to some Pakistani friends recently, and they were saying that they were hoping that Modi would be the person who could do a Nixon to China mm. move, but unfortunately it's been slow coming. Yes. They're, they're so scared of, of going to India now because they think they'll get uh, ink thrown at them if, if, if they come into the country rather than being able to, to press for, for a, a kind of uh, detente which um, the promise of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, you know, of a sort of Modi government uh, had for many people, yes. but certainly before he got elected. Well, that's true. I think uh, Modi government has disappointed um, a lot of people because he came in with an agenda that was, uh, you know, uh, strikingly economic in terms of uh, saying that we are going to uh, free the Indian private sector, uh, emphasize the individual genius of Indians for, you know, economic activity, for creating new technologies and so on. Unfortunately, none of this has happened in his first 17, 18 months in power. And that is because I think, um, for various reasons, but... He has not been able to set the country on a new trajectory as yet. Uh, he has talked a good game, but he has not really played it so far. And unless he does so, the promise of India is going to remain, uh, shall we say, um, still only a potential. It will not be something that will be realized. And for that, I think so much has to be done. In terms, in terms of freeing the Indian economy, uh, that is really hamstrung by, uh, by government controls and all kinds of government regulations. If these regulations are necessary, and these are, you know, um, they are sourced back and have the origins in the colonial times, and we haven't really uh, thrown these uh, things abroad and started afresh, and that's our problem. I think um, Modi, even now, has a chance to... Um, in a sense, recover for himself the political high ground that he started out with, uh, which he has uh, lost over time. And Francois, you spend uh, a lot of your life thinking about China, which is the other big elephant on the Asian, well, the biggest elephant on the, uh, <laughs> on the Asian landmark, the a dragon, indeed. Um, how do you see India's role in the emerging Asian order? 
Well, I, 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 I would like to come in what, what Bharat just said first. I'm a little more indulgent than observers from India, but probably precisely because I come from China. So I'm very sensitive to the obstacles that a democracy uh, puts up when you want to achieve fast change. Uh, it, 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 it's a trap, you know, and, 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 and to some extent, Narendra Modi is now in a trap. Either he speeds up the, the pace of change in order to achieve fast growth, and he's going to be accused of cutting corners uh, around the political process. He was last winter, in fact, uh, accused of trying to promulgate temporarily a number of economic acts without them passing through parliament. And he's no longer doing that, which means he slowed down. Uh, and of course, if he slows down, if he uses the incremental method for change, people are going to say it's too slow. So there you are. Uh, the Indian democratic process is never going to be summed up just by one government program or one government action. That's the huge difference with China. Now, to come to your question, obviously, that means uh, a more muted influence. For example, uh, India, in response to the uh, Silk Road, One Belt, One Road uh, China program, decided to launch its old so-called Monsoon program, Mosam program, but it's not very audible. Uh, it's something that's low-key. Uh, the Indians, for example, currently are wondering about the uh, huge advantage that the Chinese have got in Sri Lanka by ha by running the main container port, which ironically ships Indian goods. So, of course, they are a, a step behind. But aren't we all, uh, given the fact that we have a due process, which is necessarily slower than the extraordinary mobilization of cash that China can achieve? Okay. Clemens, maybe you can help us pivot to the, the global uh, order. What kind of role do you think uh, India hopes to play in the, in the current global order? I mean, the interesting thing about the Nehruvian period was there was a very clear vision for how the world should be organised. Um, more recently, it's looked like India was trying to take advantage of what opportunities there were in uh, the existing order, but without particularly investing in changing it or even being that interested in, in shaping it. Um, what, what's your take on, uh, on where India is at and how uh, far it's going to fit in with the existing order or to challenge it? Mm. Just, just one brief uh, rider to that last uh, comment by by Francois on the domestic uh, constraints. I mean, the, the the electoral setback we just saw in Bihar they demonstrates. I mean, how difficult it is for Modi also to bring through his ambitious reform agenda. There are so many institutional constraints and domestic policy cons uh, politics constraints that uh, it it will not be easy to to uh, drive through his his economic reform agenda, and that's. That's definitely what sets India apart from, from China. But coming back to your question, I mean, um, from the many discussions we had in Delhi, of course, there, the, the, what, what was shining through was the, the realist outlook of, of India. But I think there's also a strong, uh, strong uh, anchoring of Indian foreign policy in, in multilateralism. And that you can see definitely with regard to these, these new institutions, these basically China-driven attempt to... to establish some sort of a parallel international order, parallel to Bretton Woods and so on uh, with the AIB, the new development bank of BRICS. So India is part in all of this and it has strengthened its ties with the countries of the, of the global south. It has made forays into, into West Asia. 
It has uh, it has strong links with Sub-Saharan Africa. In Delhi, India just hosted the in India Africa summit. Uh, so, in that sense, I think multilateralism is still definitely on the on the on the agenda of of India's foreign policy, and that is something I think where where Europe uh, where where the EU countries can uh, can seek for for uh, more intensive cooperation with India. Do you, would you agree with that, Barack? Because I mean, one of the enduring uh, impressions I have of India and multilateralism is the way that India destroyed the Doha round. I mean, it doesn't seem to have been a friend of, of uh, multilateralism in recent years. No, I think uh, one shouldn't stress the multilateral fora as uh, primary, uh, of primary interest to India and Delhi because I think uh, New Delhi is also discovering that being part and parcel of the international consensus, as it were, which is usually Western-led, does not necessarily serve India's purposes always, and that it would have to stand up as it did in Doha, um, and in it has put forward its views in Paris, uh, it will, uh, on the climate, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, yes, it, 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 it thinks it has a stake in a multilateral sense, but I don't think it's going to persevere with the multilateral fora if they do not immediately and in the first instance serve Indian national interests uh, primarily. And if that doesn't happen, and and, and also I think given the kind of politically um, uh, problematic situation uh, Mr. Modi now faces, uh, especially after the debacle of his uh, party in power uh, in Bihar, uh, very crucial state of Bihar, um, um, he'll have less of manoeuvring space and he will simply not be able to um, drive his agenda, even it, though he has a majority in the lower house. Because it seems like you, in a uh, basically structurally antagonistic position to yeah. multilateral norms, because on the yeah. one hand, there's a traditional post-colonial suspicion of an order which you didn't, which India didn't build, which was kind of Western and serving Western yeah. values, and then overlaid with that is the kind of ultra-nationalism of, of, of Modi. So you kind of have problems with it from two angles. Is that right? No, absolutely. I think that's a correct reading of things, and you will have therefore this inherent tension in Indian policies uh, that may not work out always uh, in the manner that perhaps the US and the West generally or the EU for instance would expect. And so if that doesn't happen again there's the possibility this, the effects of that would be a souring of relations to some extent or the other with EU and the US and whoever else um, are for uh, these kinds of multilateral um, issues where they want a consensus fast and they want China and India as the major uh, developing countries uh, to um, you know be part of that uh, part of those solutions. And I don't think it's going to be that easy, uh, especially not now, as I've just said, because of the domestic political situation. So if we turn the the um, uh, prism round and think you think that India is going to be a frustrating power for for the West in in global institutions, how does India view Europe in particular? I mean, how important is the EU relationship to to India? Maybe come to you first and then talk to the Europeans. Um. Yeah, um, no, I think uh, India sees uh, EU as really an alternative source of technology. Uh, in the civilian and military sense, if you, if you were to bifurcate the technology issues, for instance, uh, there's the trade, of course, but technology trade becomes rather central to relations, I think, and they will become central to India and Modi's policies of making India um, that program. And uh, the problem there, again, is how much 
how willing are the European Union uh, states, uh, individually and as a collective, uh, interested in actually genuinely transferring technology? There's a problem there uh, because it uh, impinges on the interests of the singular European countries. Uh, so that might not might not happen because there's so much writing on it. So if that doesn't happen, Russia is far more forthcoming with technology, for instance. So you may end up, therefore, uh, in a sense, um, reinforcing the very strong links India's had in technology sense with Russia. So we, therefore, uh, have to be a bit more um, wary of, of projecting um, very um, optimistic uh, sort of uh, picture uh, because I think there are these retardants in relations, even though it has very high potential, if there is a convergence of interests and convergence of approaches and outlooks, uh, which I don't see easily happening. Clements, you work for a foundation associated with quite a large European technology um, uh, company. Um, what do you think the um, the chances are of... Uh, of Europe being a source of, of high tech for the next wave of Indian economic growth? Well, I think that, that I think this this won't be so much of a problem because I mean there is already a lot of cooperation, for example, between Germany and India going on in the in the area of high technology, and a lot of efforts are there. So this and also the, the the trade relations and economic relations, I don't see that much of a problem and a very good relationship between the EU and Europe, uh, uh, individual European countries in India. Where I am, where I uh, see concerns is uh, the fact that I mean, and that was clear throughout all our discussions in in, in Delhi and Mumbai that the EU uh, is not taken seriously as a security actor in India or by India. And that, that I, I think is something that that should change. There are so many areas where there is uh, room to maneuver for uh, for more uh, for increasing cooperation. Be it the Indian Ocean's uh, maritime security in the Indian Ocean, be it uh, uh, India's experience with with radical uh, Islam and, and and so on. So I think uh, it would be good for Europe for the EU to to develop a more coherent uh, strategy to, uh, with uh, with regard to India towards India. Uh, in terms of security and, and, and strategic issues. So, François, do you, are you optimistic about that? I mean, you spend a lot of time talking to European governments beyond selling weapons to, to India, which seems to be something that uh, many European governments would like to do more of. Um, how much scope is there for, for playing the sort of role that Clements was calling for? Well, there has to be a turn from India on trade. Uh, India is not transfixed by international trade agreements. It's looking at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TTIP, uh, uh, Europe-Japan free trade, uh, moving by, and it, except for a few people, it doesn't seem very concerned. That reflects really how much inward-looking uh, India is uh, about its economy. But on the other hand, interests can coincide. Uh, let's go back to multilateral aid, for example, well, the Indians are not particularly keen on, on aid for aid, but they've become concerned about the Indian Ocean and, the Afri and Africa. So for the first time, India is becoming a major aid giver, as is Europe. Talking about rules, trying to find common projects, maybe easier than with some others. Talk about trade. Well, it's in our interest to get into the uh, Indian market also for services. Look at all the virtual economy that's absolutely uh, booming in India almost as much as in China. 
uh, it's our interest to get in on that. Not only selling nuts and bolts and weapons and cars, uh, but 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 other issues. Uh, areas where we should be more pragmatic on the European side: climate. Uh, it's clear that nothing is going to make India renounce its coal industry. It a good part of Modi, the good as the good side of Modi is that he's launching uh, alternative energy plants, which are quite ambitious. Well, we should contribute to that, and we should also be more pragmatic about coal uh, and probably sell cleaner plants to India rather than say it's not good. There is adjustment to be made on both sides. It is striking if you look at the trades, the, the trade figures compared to China, how big the the difference is. I mean, uh, bilateral trading goods with China is is worth was worth four hundred and sixty seven billion euros in twenty thirteen, and by contrast, uh, the EU India traders were just worth seventy two billion um, uh, in twenty fourteen. So there is a kind of huge gulf. Yeah, there is a huge gap, but look also at the upwards curve. Uh, India's trade with Africa, for example, has been multiplied by almost 30, even if it started from a very low base. In fact, that's how India's trade with China boomed. I can still remember the period, maybe 20 years ago, when China and India were trading less than $250 million per year. Uh, now it's closer to $100 billion. So things can change. If um, Europeans want to change the nature of the relationship, what would they need to do to get noticed by the... But, but, sorry, what would the Europeans need to do to get noticed by Delhi? Well, I think the European Union will have to become far more independent in its approach. Uh, too often, I think, um, the European Union seems to be a junior partner of the United States, meaning you merely tow the American line on most... I uh, thought that was Indian policy, to be a junior partner of the <laughs> well, United that's, States. Absolutely. <laughs> that's most unfortunate, that's true. Uh, we're all, all, we all trying to, com you know, uh, competing for the same slot as junior partners, I think, for the United States. And that, uh, that is precisely why I think where Modi has faltered that he has sought to make India a junior partner, both in security sense, in terms of economic um, linkages and so on, as a junior partner of the United States, and doesn't work. And then the EU will have to, to, in a sense, differentiate and articulate its own interests, collective interests, as does India in South Asia and in the larger uh, continental Asia. And once that happens, I think you will begin to see uh, that the U.S. view and perspective on things uh, really does not or do not always serve um, the purposes singly of India or the European Union. So the more European Union acts independently and more uh, India acts independently in their own respective interests, the greater the potential and possibilities for cooperation and collaboration um, and for a much stronger partnership and more genuinely strategic partnership, I think, uh, that looms over there. Uh, but it's still unrealized. And how likely do you think that's going to happen from the European perspective? I mean, Francois, it's pretty striking how, apart from the uh, South Asian population in London, how much less excited the rest of London is by the, the Modi visit than they were by the Xi Jinping visit uh, a couple of weeks ago. And Britain is a country where India does loom relatively large for obvious historical reasons. How do we get the rest of the EU to take India seriously? And why should, should um, we care so much about a country that is much more inward-looking than, than China is, for example? Well, I think we're very far from having the common man or the common citizen in Europe widely interested about India. 
For one thing, there are not that many tourists. Uh, visas, in fact, are still a problem in both directions, by the way. Uh, for another thing, uh, Indian investment is still sparse. You know, there are a few success stories. Some of them have, in fact, become uh, uh, scarecrows uh, like the Mittal uh, steel story, even though he's hardly Indian by now. Uh, so there is a long road there. At the level of expertise, at the level of the EU, it's clear that if you want to balance China, if you want to uh, have an influential role, an influential role within Asia, you have to deal with India. It's also clear that India has the power to say no and to frustrate you in a lot of places. If you care about Afghanistan, if only because you might get even more refugees from Afghanistan, if you care about what's going to happen with Iran when it's reintegrating itself, then you have to talk to India. If you want to uh, try and get uh, a, a system of rules uh, in place in East Africa, you have to cooperate with India. It's all these reasons which are clearly not palpable to the general public. I must say there is a, a European fascination now with Chinese autocracy, uh, one way or another, uh, which is quite striking. Uh, but these are the actual steps that Europeans should do in their own interest. And for that, again, they have to recognize Indian interests as well. Well, that's a pretty long and comprehensive list, Francois. And I think we'll know that Europeans are rising to the challenge when um, Modi comes to Brussels and meets with the leadership there rather than simply coming to, to London and meeting with David Cameron, something which has not been possible for, for the last few years. <laughs> Well, that brings uh, to an end the, the main part of the discussion, which was really interesting. Thank you very much to all three of you. But we have one last challenge on this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf uh, segment. Clemens, do you want to go first? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? I was going back because of the, the elections in Bihar. I was going back to, to a book by Harish Kare, which came out earlier this year uh, with Hachette India. And it's called How Modi Won It, Notes from the 2014 Elections. And it gives a good idea... Uh, uh, why uh, about the Modi wave and the formula of success of Modi, how his media campaigning took place, how he caters to the interests of the, 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 the Indian middle class, the aspiring Indian middle class. And it, it's not an academic book. It's, it's a book by an eminent uh, Indian journalist, Harish Kari, who is well connected and it gives a lot of anecdotal evidence. So it's also a good read. Great. Sounds fascinating. What about you, Francois? What are you reading at the moment? I, I would tend to, to, to cite, uh, how would I call it, a geek book on, about India by Indians, which connects with what we've been discussing, that is fast growth, governance. And it's by uh, Nanda Nilekani, who is actually the founder of Infosys, and a man named Viral Shah, who was behind the uh, unique ID uh, and computerized identification system, which means that now... Uh, about three quarters of all Indians have unfalsifiable uh, electronic IDs. The book is called Rebooting India. It's obviously a little optimistic, although it doesn't hide the challenge of implementing all this. And this is a site which Europeans don't look at at all, which is the extraordinary progress of the virtual economy uh, and the high-tech economy in India behind all the difficulties and how nationwide this is becoming. In fact, and I'll cap my, 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 my word with that, we heard a lot about nationalization of politics uh, in India through technology. Okay, Barat, what's on your bookshelf? 
Well, actually, I just finished reading Christopher Hitchens, uh, <laughs> God is Not Great. I think he's an extraordinary, uh, quite an extraordinary talent, isn't he? The late Christopher Hitchens. Um, his take on um, organized religions, all of them, uh, are really terrific. Um, it's the sort of thing that I think um, uh, skeptics of all religions, uh, and in fact, even those who are religious-minded, really ought to study because what he says is really the truth. I mean, uh, fate is, after all, a matter of uh, you know human invention, and as is religion, as he says. And I think it's the right thing because that that goes to the heart of most of extremist religion, uh, religious um, thrusts that you see in parts of the world, like West Asia and so on. And yes. I, I found it very, very revealing, and I think it was a great, uh, great. Um, uh, educational experience for me, quite besides excellent writing that Christopher Hitchens always does. And is it a good time for religious skeptics in, in Modi's India? Um, let's be very clear. Hinduism is not, uh, is not a religion of the book. So it, it escaped Christopher Hitchens' attentions, uh, and um, you know, mercifully, because I think um, Hinduism is, uh, as perhaps uh, many of your uh, listeners are aware, uh, it's just a, a, a compendium of practices. Uh, it's just a lot of rituals and so on. They have no meaning, and, uh, and that's why it's a pantheistic religion. Millions of gods, and you can anybody can set himself up as a religious leader. And if you have a following, hey, you got it made, you see. So, so you have a lot of fraudulent people running around, um, which Westerners in particular are prone to. At the same time, there are real seekers out there who do not seek the uh, public uh, uh, forum. And uh, they, they, they seek their own uh, individual um, you know, release or nirvana or whatever. And the point, I think, is that ultimately religions are, uh, in some sense, uh, they fulfill some human um, desire, I think, to know the unknowable. And in that sense, I suppose, everybody is religious. We all are uh, stuck by things in nature that are fascinating, that are, you know, that, is, that are awesome, uh, that you can't make sense of in, within your limited uh, mindscape. So it's a release, as I said, <laughs> to have read Christopher Hitchens <laughs> and his take on organised religion. OK, well, for my own uh, uh, recommendation, I'd like to uh, mention another compendium, which I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. What does India think? A fantastic collection of essays. But you can also find if your appetite is not totally sated by what does India think? We have a web series on Asia's giants on our website as well, with a whole series of different articles on China and India and Indian soft power and a whole series of other topics. So there are links to all those publications that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts from Barak Karnad, Clement Spies, François Goodmont and myself, Mark Leonard. It's thank you and goodbye for now. The researcher of our podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katharina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>